0: First off, everyone knows that Jesus isn't actually advocating self-harm, right? I just want to be absolutely crystal clear about that. But just because Jesus is being hyperbolic doesn't mean that Jesus isn't being serious. He is serious. All sin, even sins of thought, can take us and those around us down a treacherous road into a hell of our own making. That's what happens to David in our story today. A lot has happened since our reading last week when Joshua charged the Israelites to be faithful to Yahweh, who brought them out of the land of Egypt into a good land. The period of judges ends in utter disaster as civil war engulfs Israel, which has been stuck in a cycle of sin, oppression, liberation, rinse and repeat. The tribe of Benjamin is nearly wiped from the face of the earth. After such trauma, it's easy to understand why the people would want a king to rule over them. Every other nation has a king, after all. Maybe things would settle down a bit under a king. Maybe they would have some protection from foreign armies and raiders. But the prophet and Judge Samuel warns the Israelites that they will get much more than they bargained for when they get a king. Monarchy requires bureaucracy. He will take your sons and your daughters. It requires an army. And it especially requires money, taxes. Taxes. Samuel gives a compelling speech, ending with the warning, You will be his slaves. Yet Samuel's words fall on deaf ears. The people are determined to have a king. And the first king, Saul, is an absolute train wreck. First he does fine, but after two acts of just major unfaithfulness to God, God begins looking for a better candidate. God chooses David, the little shepherd boy, the eighth son of Jesse, to shepherd God's people, Israel. But at some point, the shepherd became a wolf. Today's story happens long after David becomes king. His enemies are either dead or on the defensive. In chapter 7, God promised David that he would forever have a descendant on the throne. No conditions, no strings. This is at the height of David's powers, thanks to the loyalty and love, the hesed of God. But David repays God's chesed with betrayal. His downfall begins from the very first verse of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, when kings go out to battle, David sat in Jerusalem. He's not doing his job. We find out right away he is not doing his job. Instead of being in the field with his men, he is at home in a city empty of fighting age men. What could possibly go wrong? You can picture the scene. David has just woken up from a long siesta on a warm spring afternoon. Takes a stroll on the roof of the palace. And he sees a woman bathing, undergoing the purification rites after her period. It's creepy, right? pretty creepy. The story gets worse. He finds out who she is, the wife of one of his officers, because you don't get named unless you're um, uh, someone of some substance in, in the scripture, and possibly the daughter of another officer. We have why we her father is named too. He's out in the field, so he has messengers get her for him. And who in their right mind is going to say no To the king, David takes what he wants. He acts with impunity. Things spiral from there. She gets pregnant. He concocts a scheme to entice Uriah to sleep with his wife, so she'll, so he'll think that the child is his. And after that fails, he makes up another half-baked scheme to have him killed at the front. Ironically, Uriah the foreigner shows better love and loyalty than David the king, the one who ought to be showing it. David's sin has a deadly radius already. Not only kills Uriah, it kills several other of his officers, too. But one person, by the grace of God, is empowered to confront the king, the prophet Nathan, And Nathan does it in a brilliant way. He tells a story, a parable, a story of a sweet little lamb taken and eaten by a rich man with flocks of his own. It's perfect because it doesn't map on perfectly to the story. So David takes the bait. Even though his own moral integrity is impaired, David is still roused enough. This man, it literally says in Hebrew, is a son of death. Nathan says in those famous words, you are the man. David's first sin, a sin of thought, of misplaced desire, has gone into a death spiral which will have catastrophic consequences. Not just for his own family, but for God's people, Israel. David has repaid God's chesed with betrayal and death. So why tell such a horrible story? It's a cautionary tale for us today. Too often in the news we hear stories of pastors, of leaders who seem to act a lot like King David does. They seem to act with impunity. And when pastors, leaders, congregations, even congregations do this, when they decide that things are pretty good at the moment, when they can rest on their laurels, They can often lose their purpose, as David did. David stayed in Jerusalem when he should have been with his men. He stopped acting like God's chosen king and began acting like any other leader would act. When pastors and congregations rest on their laurels, they too can forget what their purpose is and begin acting not as congregations but as any other social organization might act. Actions do indeed matter. But thank God it isn't only our actions that matter. If it did, we would be doomed. God's actions matter too, and they matter far more than our own. Some surprising things happen in the story later on. Bathsheba, whom we can call a victim of sexual assault because that's what she is, gains her own voice and agency. She advocates for her son Solomon and ensures his succession to the throne. Second, God does not break God's promise to David or to God's people because of David's sins. David's sins do have consequences. God does hold David accountable for what he does. But God... Is one thousand parts mercy to four parts judgment, as we heard in the Ten Commandments. Although God's judgment can be terrible, God's mercy is stronger still. God's mercy and loyalty, God's love and fidelity to us are constant, even and especially when ours are not. God's while our actions do indeed matter. God's actions matter far more. And God in Christ continually calls us, as God's people, as God's congregation, back to to our purpose. Back to our purpose in being here. We're constantly called back. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christ the King Sunday. And that day, we remember that Christ is not a king according to the way we use that term or in the way Samuel used it. According to Samuel, kings take and take and never give. Jesus gives and gives. Jesus gives himself completely for his beloved people. Jesus, rich beyond compare, becomes poor for our sake. Jesus reconciles us to God. God's actions indeed matter for our broken and hurting world. Calling us all back to Shalom. So let's remember our purpose. Let's not sit back and forget who we are as David did. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that the world is here to serve us. We're called to be Shalom Lutheran Church, a community of the gospel that gives true peace, that are agents of that peace in the world, in a broken and hurting world. Let's live into that purpose that our Lord has given us. Thanks be to God. Amen.